This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello Allah, and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Experts in the UK say that they are in the midst of a hidden public health crisis when it comes to children and sleep. The sheer exhaustion can drive parents crazy, feeling like they cannot be themselves, creating distance between spouses and even making it difficult for parents to function properly at work. Today, we're taking a deep dive into sleep and kids from newborns upwards with Cecile Descali, lead parent educator at Malak Mama and Baby Care. She's here to answer your questions, so get them in now, 4215 on the text lines and on Instagram DMs at Pulse95 Radio. Are you ready to sleep through the night again? We are here to help on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Experts say the UK is in the midst of a hidden public health crisis when it comes to sleep. There are more children who can't sleep than we realize. And I think it's something that parents are not happy to talk about as they feel that people are out judging their parenting skills if their child can't sleep so they don't seek out help. Does that sound familiar? Well, you're definitely not alone. And most parents at one stage or another are experiencing difficulty in getting their children to sleep through the night, with many turning to different techniques, including cry it out, co-sleeping, and even sleep clinics in search of relief. So to help us find answers, all of the answers that we need. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to welcome back to the studio, Cecile Descali, lead parent educator at Malak Mama and Baby Care. So good to have you. And good to be here. I'm actually excited about this topic because it's so important. Oh, I, I tell you what, uh, you know, if you were going to be asked about the biggest challenge, particularly when you're parenting babies, does sleep come up as the top one in your extensive experience, Cecile? I would actually say that sleep actually is above breastfeeding. It's number one. Breastfeeding is a close number two, but sleep, that one is so important because you have other options to feed your child, but you don't have any other options but to sleep. Why is it so hard to get babies to sleep. Let's start there. We will be talking about, uh, you know, all sorts of other age groups as well. Uh, but it's it's interesting because, you know, there is that expression, sleep like a baby. But if you know how a baby sleeps, babies don't sleep. <laughs> That's quite right, Sally. Actually, I mean, our parenting journey is often so difficult because we feel that we are unable to control things. And in our lives today, we control a lot of things. You know, we have remote controls for a lot of stuff, but not for our babies. So when we start parenting, when we prepare for parenting, I think it's important to then have a realistic point of view on what your child is going to do when they're finally born. They're not going to be these perfect little babies that wake up, smile at you, feed, and then go back to sleep. A lot of times they they actually need you to help them. But the more we help them, in fact, the worse it becomes 
because then when we put them down and want to walk away, they say, no, 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 you've got to stay and do all these little habits that you formed for me. And, and that's okay. In those first six weeks, you can't actually create any bad habits. They, they are essentially dependent on you. They need you to do a lot of things. And I'd even say in the first year, they're going to be dependent on you. But the first six weeks, the most. And it's actually what we talk about in the sleep world is creating good habits. Mm -hmm. And it's those good habits that then will guide your child into good sleep. Because here's the, the, the funny thing. Babies actually sleep a lot. They do. They sleep like, you know, anywhere bet between, I don't know, like um, 14 and 16 hours a day. Actually 16 to 18 hours 16 a day. 16 to 18, right? Mm. But they don't do it in big chunks. They no. do it in about 40 to an hour long, you know, sleeps. We'll say that a sleep cycle is 40, 45, 50 minutes long. Some children will sleep a little bit longer than a sleep cycle. But every sleep cycle is dependent on the cues that they are given before they go to bed. And there's a couple of concepts that are important for parents to understand. One of the most important is what I've termed HAT, happy awake time. And this is variable across ages. This is something that each baby differs in. And understanding what a lot of people will call your baby's sweet spot of when are they tired enough to go to bed? When are they now going to become overtired? That's something parents have to learn. And when babies can't really in the first six weeks cue it, it's very difficult to understand. So we become very clock driven. We have a lot of literature that is written around the clock. Mm. And it's okay to use a clock, absolutely. But it's also important in those first six weeks to watch what is your child telling you about happy awake time? Listen to the child more than you listen to the clock. Absolutely. And the first face, I talk about the facial cues. And the first face you get with a child, except for boys, by the way, is this face that says, hi, how are you? Come Big play smiley with me. face. Yeah, boys don't do that. Really? Boys wake up going, you didn't feed me again. <laughs> <It's> so needy. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that mothers of boys are laughing at that because... Before they even go to bed, boys are I, going, don't put me down until you feed me. And then they're happy to see you. I didn't know that because I don't have boys. But, you know, that is so interesting that it's different. Every now and again, there's a girl that acts like a boy. But most girls are very polite. Hi, how are you? Half an hour into their awake time. Is it possible to get some food? Whereas boys are just feed me straight away. Wow. But as the happy awake time progresses and you're watching the clock a little bit, you will start to see in a small baby the very early cues of needing to sleep. And parents, again, will laugh at these. Hiccuping, sneezing, blinking and frowning. And frowny face is my best. Frowny face says, I'm not sure if I'm hungry or maybe I'm tired, but I'm going to give you five seconds to decide which it is. And if you don't get it right, I'm going to shout at you. <laughs> so if you try to feed me and I didn't want food, then I'm going to be upset with you. If you try to put me down and I wanted food, well, I'm going to be even more upset with oh you. Oh, my gosh, you can't win. No. If you get it right, if you recognize and you understand your child and you get them down at frowny face, you then see them starting to stare and blink again. And then you see that amazing kind of sailor, you know, going to bed, look with the eyes rolling back. And that can be quite freaky because they don't close the eyes. They actually keep the eyes open for a little while. And then you can gently close the eyes and they'll drift off to sleep. Yeah. 
In an overtired child, however, they'll drift off and five minutes later be awake. So we'll talk about how to manage that for them. But if you miss frowny face, you then go to more physical cues of a hand in front of the eye, trying to rub their eyes, trying to pull their ears, trying to put their hand in their mouth. And the hand in the mouth is a dual cue. This is a cue that says, I'm hungry and I'm trying to self-soothe. I'm trying to go to sleep. See, I'm thinking that, you know, they're just hungry. I would feed the and, child at that point. And under six weeks, I would tell every mother to feed their child at that point. Yeah. It's, it's a natural assumption. Right. And you can't really go wrong there. Yeah. However, if you then again miss those more physical cues, now your child becomes visibly distressed. Mm -mm. And in this face, the child looks unhappy. They're frowning. They're rubbing their eyes. They're kicking their arms and legs in different directions. And this is a child who I know parents say, oh, my child doesn't like to be swaddled. If you try to swaddle them, they will fight it. But they need the swaddle to help them calm down. Mm. So we swaddle, we feed, and we try to get them down. But they're harder to get down at this point. And yet again, if we still haven't even recognized this as the need to go to sleep, they then become that child that's arched back, wailing, so uncomfortable, they look like they now have bad gas. Ooh. And, and my favorite or my least favorite word is the word colic. Yes. Because colic is gas. And gas is normal. And when a child gets overtired, they look like they've got gas, but they're not. And often that is only brought up when we talk about the history. Oh, my gosh. Um, we need to kind of, you know, get into all of that. You, you've just kind of, you know, uh, just touched the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot to unpack here uh, when it comes to, to your baby and getting them to sleep. And, and I love all of these um, visual cues, the physical cues uh, that we need to be watching out for. We're going to be uh, talking about um, letting them cry it out. Okay, absolutely. I just saw you. I just saw you cringe. That's coming up <laughs> after the break. You have to listen out for this one. It's probably the most controversial thing when we're talking about uh, babies and sleep. And lots of your texts also coming in on 4215 about sleep. We're going to get to those too. You can get us on Instagram as well at Pulse95 Radio. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, we are talking sleep and children, particularly uh, babies right now with Cecile Descali, um, who has incredible experience in this area. But you know what? Um, Cecile, we've got uh, lots of texts about um, coming in about babies waking up. Mariam has said that her son... Uh, would wake up seven to ten times a night. He is uh, six months old, she says. Um, you know what? I had two different experiences with mine. I had one who would wake up, um, she would wake up five, six times a night. And then that was the first, the eldest. And for a whole year, um, and she drove me insane. I was just like a walking zombie the entire time, you know, the rest of the day. I just... You, you just can't, you can't function on no sleep. But aren't you amazed at how mothers do manage to function yes. on this lack of sleep and how amazing moms are, even when they're at their tiredest? Exactly. It's so true. But, you know, and then the second child, she slept, she slept, you know, yeah. and she woke up like once a night for the dream feed and that was it. But then she got worse as she got older. Yes. 
So, so there, there's no right or wrong again. You know, we've been speaking about the happy awake time. Mm. And in a small baby, leaving them in their bed when they're due to go to sleep, even if they're crying, where you don't walk away, is still deemed a cried out method. Yeah, this it, is what we need to talk about because, you know, cry it out. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, that's, you know, that's terrible. You can't do that to a child. You know, but what, what a yeah, so please do tell us about, you know, all of the different ways that, because there's not one type of cry it no. out. That's important to say. Yes. Unfortunately, I think we as parents will say any kind of crying is cried out. But when we put a small baby down, we have to understand that they don't have, like us, the ability to de-stress by arguing with our husbands, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a great form of de-stress to have a good argument. Yeah. Um, however, they can't go out for a run. They can't read a book. They can't play a TV game or something like that. Mm. So what do they do when they're too tired? They cry. And it's listening to that cry and understanding that there's no harm in that child crying. So under even six months, we stay with them. We don't pick them up. But the, my safety net is that if I told a parent not to pick up their child, but they were actually screaming, that parent would pick them up, whether I asked them to or not. So there is that kind of parent common sense that would prevail. But leaving them down, and I don't ask a parent to do more than 20 minutes. Sleep cycles are 40, 45, 50 minutes. It takes a child about half a sleep cycle, 20 minutes to fall asleep. And if your child is nice and calm but not yet asleep at 20 minutes, you wouldn't go and pick them up. Mm. But at 20 minutes, if they were honestly still crying, still visibly distressed, you would pick up. You would cuddle, you would rock, and in a small baby, even feed to sleep. However, as they get older, if you continue to feed to sleep, that forms another part of their cues that when they then cycle in the middle of the night, 45 minutes, I refer to it as a room service knock, and they call the chief room service maid. <laughs> And she comes along with her magic wand, which is often the bottle or the breast, and feeds them and they go back to sleep. But when you're talking about cycling every 45 minutes, and think of a night as 12 hours, you're asking that child to cycle 15 times. Therefore, if you are woken as an adult, even in the end of the night, maybe seven times, you're going to be exhausted the next day. Mm. So starting early with the good habits, one of them which is establish your feeding routine, the second one is wrap and put down, and then try not pick up. And try not pick up for 20 minutes. That helps the child learn, this is time to go to sleep, this is what I can expect. And from very early, they don't expect to be rocked to sleep. And now, this is not dealing with children who have a genuine colic and a genuine reflux. These babies are completely different. How do you know the difference between, you know, a baby that's properly got colic and, and a baby who just needs to settle? So I think the difference is in how they're feeding, how they're growing. And a lot of times that does need to go to a doctor to be properly diagnosed. And if you are diagnosed with a real colic, a reflux baby, a lactose intolerant baby, these are babies we have to manage slightly different. And there's lots of techniques that we can use that still help parents get good sleep but don't actually involve the child crying. Mm. Because they, if, a, if you have a reflux baby and you think they might be a little bit uncomfortable, you're not going to leave them to cry. But certainly as your child gets older, and I don't ask a parent to walk out of a room until at least a year, and then I will often ask them to do what is kind of a modified ferberization method. We ask them to stay with the child for 20 minutes, leave for five minutes, and come back for 20 
If that's working well, fantastic. If it's not working well, then I might even say leave for 20, come back for five, leave for 20. I have a firm belief the longer you allow them to self-settle, the better the child learns to self-settle. Yeah. When we attend too quickly, and ferberization does do the two minutes in, two minutes out, three minutes in, three minutes out. Um, when you attend too quickly, you often teach the child to cry. And that's not what we want to teach. We want to teach them that we're here for them. We're going to meet all their needs. And 100% basic needs must be met first. They must be warm. They must be dry. They must be safe. And then you can, with no bad conscience, walk away. Yeah. But when we teach our child to cry, that's harder to break. And that's a lot of times what I'm seeing in the older child is this child has been taught that crying has a great effect of getting picked up, rocked and held and sleeping on mommy and daddy. And I'm not criticizing those parents who choose to do parent attachment parenting where they are holding the child to sleep. That's a choice they're making. However, I am saying that as the child grows, they are not going to be as easy to settle. They're not going to be as easy to withdraw from. And I often wonder, when a child's not sleeping well, how does that affect them at school? And if you're sleeping with your child, if you're having your child constantly wake you up, how does that affect you as a person? And how does that domino onto your marriage? So when we're saying leave them to cry, I know it's not nice, but wouldn't you rather spend two or three or four nights really going through what seems like the worst time of your life to come out the other end and go, okay. Relief. Yeah, I'm sleeping. So, and don't you deserve it? Do you feel like parents are, are, you know, what is it that kind of stops parents from, you know, doing it? Is it kind of the pressure from family members around them to not let the baby, you know, cry it out or from other mums or whatever? Um, or, Or, you know, is there other kind of, you know, pressure or shame attached to this or what is it? I think we read into things a lot like we've got the um, the bad word at the moment is cortisol. Okay, Cortisol is a stress hormone which is naturally occurring in our body and when we are distressed, when you as a parent are not sleeping, your cortisol levels are very, very raised. And if you're not sleeping as a parent and your cortisol levels remain raised for a long period of time, there's a lot of damage done to you physically. It affects so many parts, so many uh, like your blood pressure, you know, men with stress. Cortisol has actually been blamed for our midlife tummies. Really? Yes. Um, it's nice to blame it on that, but it's not truly always the cause. But it's it's you and your stress levels that, can that actually you're not being it. able to manage, particularly because you've got kids who are not sleeping yes. and letting you sleep. Yes, and that affects our work, except and you know how we how we actually grow career wise as well. Whereas the cortisol level for your child, when it's raised when they're crying, settles very quickly, and it's not as harmful as a parent who's got a long term raised cortisol. I'm not suggesting cortisol is a good thing to have raised. I'm just saying it's less harmful for those few days where your child is maybe crying and screaming at you than when you are actually long-term not sleeping as an adult. We have to be stronger as parents, I think. I think we have to accept that when, when even if someone judges us, we actually have to get sleep. Sleep is a basic need for our life. Because you just feel like, oh my gosh, I can't bear to hear them crying. 
And I felt that too. I had to do that with my first one. I had to, you know, let her after a year and and two months. She was a year and two months, so she was old enough to get it. Uh, which is why it worked within two nights, and she was like sleeping through the entire night after that. The entire night, she didn't wake up once. She was waking up six, seven times before that. But I had to, I had to just kind of distance myself from that screaming and wailing and shouting because she really was. Uh, she screamed the house down, uh, but that was so difficult and. And you it were lucky. makes you feel awful. You, you were lucky. You had for support. You had people who said, I'm happy for you to do this. But you're right. There's a lot of times when parents are being told by their parents, by their friends, their family, don't do that. We wouldn't have done that. And actually, if we go back, and I'm of the older generation, um, I can tell you that kids were put to bed and told to go to bed. And they were ignored. Children, we would say things to people like, children should be heard and not seen, or seen and not heard. And, you know, we we did not negotiate with our children about bedtime. Need to be a a little bit tougher, I think. Uh, We need to talk about, um, you know, what happens when your child is older, but they still have sleep issues. We're going to tackle that after the break. We're also uh, going to talk about co-sleeping. And when do you need a sleep clinic? Big questions all coming up with Cecile after this. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Yeah, we are talking all things sleep with Cecile Descali today. Now, Cecile, um, on the other end of um, sleep, we did talk about crying it out. Um, it's one of those things that, that is quite controversial but can work if you do it right. Uh, co-sleeping, this is a big one too. Yeah, and the thing is with co-sleeping is it's such a nice, cuddly, kind of comfortable way to sleep that it is something that you possibly slip into without even realizing it. Yes. Unfortunately, once they get a little bit older and can move, if you've ever slept with a toddler, you'll understand they kind of circle the bed and they kick parents off the bed which then results in dad often moving to a spare room another bed and this is very bad for family dynamics because the people who should be sharing the marital bed is the mother and the father what age are we talking about here even as old as well as young as should i rather say 18 months to two years of age um, but we know of people, I know of people who are still co-sleeping at kind of 10, 11 years of age. Wow. And even sometimes moms will say, oh, but it's okay. They only come in in the early morning. But our important time of sleep is the early morning. So when a child is coming into your bed at that time in the morning, it can be very difficult. It's disruptive. Yes. And once we take control of it and we decide no more, we're going to put them in their own room. We are going to have protest and lots of negotiation because unfortunately at this age, they now understand things like if they're potty training, I need to go to the toilet. Mm. They know that that's going to get them instantly out the room. They also can negotiate one more story. There's always one more story. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it's because I'm lonely and we then feel guilty. We feel we're bad parents because, well, if the child's lonely and we're here, surely we should just put them in our bed with us. Yeah, we're so selfish because we're not, you know, because we want a good spending night's the sleep. time with them. Yeah. yeah. And and I think a lot of that does come in the fact that parents work. We no longer having um in the in the Middle East where families don't need two incomes. 
we now have mothers needing to go to work as well as fathers. Yes. And fathers, I think, have a bigger guilt trip because they often travel. So therefore, when they're at home, they often feel, well, don't worry, I'll just sleep with the child tonight. You know, you get a good night's sleep while I'm here because they do get a good night's sleep when you're away. Yeah. So we, we, we get into this almost muddle of what is right and what is wrong. And what is right is that parents share a bed and children have their own bed. And again, if you're choosing differently, that's a choice you're making. We're not telling you you can't, but... We are saying that this is the family dynamics. Years ago, when we used to say it took a village to raise a child, that was different. Families, whole families slept in one room because of safety. And I'm actually reading a very interesting book about this at the moment called Why Do We Sleep? It's not a book I recommend for parents, actually. It's really technical. But for someone like myself, it is so interesting. Yeah. And he, he talks about even the different circadian rhythms people who go to bed late and wake up late, people who go to bed early and wake up early, and how society is even forcing us to change those rhythms. So I think setting what is a societal norm of bedtime by about 8 o'clock for a child is important, especially the older child going to school, because I'd like to go on a circadian rhythm, but your child has to be at school at a set time. Mm-mm. So even if your child is a late sleeper and late riser, yeah, school starts at 7.38. They we've, can't come in late. Yeah, we've had experts on the show before talking about the need to actually shift school timings to make them later because it doesn't suit our circadian rhythms. Are you one of those people who would think that that's a good idea? Well, it does meet some people's circadian rhythms. Yeah. Some people will be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. 7.30 starting school is great. Mm. But for that child who only wants to wake at 7, 8 o'clock, that's a really bad time yeah. for them to start school. So maybe shifting schools to nine o'clock would work yeah. just to accommodate everybody mm. because you're not going to be at school until nine o'clock at night. But that could mean that the child goes to school by, you know, home by late afternoon and they can still go to bed a bit later because they can wake up later. However, setting that bedtime and meeting the societal norms is important. So, okay. That, that is really important. For someone who, um, like Leila, who has texted in and says her son is seven uh, and he won't sleep unless he is with her still at this time, makes every excuse under the sun. How do you get that child who's now seven, eight, nine, ten, even as you're mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, to get out of your bed and start sleeping on their own in their room peacefully? So it's something that she has to decide to do. She has to be comfortable that she's going to make a choice and she's going to be consistent with that choice. Mm -hmm. If there's any inconsistency, the child will work it out very quickly and you'll end up even worse than before. So setting the boundary of this is your bedtime, you're going in your room and sometimes even putting a gate, closing a door. Really? Once you leave. Mm. Unfortunately, if they can talk through a gate, they can negotiate with you and that's not so good. That's so, it. They have to be just in jail, yeah, basically. Basically. <laughs> and I, and They're I, trapped. They I, can't get out. I am a little bit against closing a door on a child, but I think sitting with them beforehand and saying, this is what's going to happen, and then doing it, and making sure your child's room is child-proofed, nothing there can harm them. I actually encourage taking out all electronics. You know, even a seven-year-old, iPads, they even have phones today. They have TVs in their room. 
I recommend no electronics in the room at all. Vitally important. Yeah, I think even as adults, we shouldn't have yeah. these in our rooms because 100%. this is where we should be talking to each other. Exactly. So yeah. making it childproof, removing electronics, setting that bedtime boundary, closing the door. Mm-hmm. And then you can either choose to, if they come to your bed, taking them back. I don't really think I'd say lock the door, although I have had parents who've wanted to do that. So I'd be saying rather take the time and effort to take them back each time and walk out again. That sets a clear guideline to them of this is happening. Do you have to talk to them or not talk to them? Some people say don't talk to them in that time. You just put them straight back gently and then they'll get the message. So Yeah, there's two different schools of thought. Some parents want to be able to talk to them. Some parents are happy to ignore. Mm. I think when you're quiet... You, or if you say very firmly, it's still nighttime, this is not the time to be up, and don't sit and have a chat with them. Don't agree to read another story. Don't agree to sit and hold their hand. Because when you do agree to do those things, you make it longer. So just, they, just kind of be firm and just say, look, it's my time to sleep and it's your time to sleep. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it helps bring in an expert, someone outside the family who has a talk with a child. Oh. I'm so glad that, that you're bringing that up. When do you know that you need an expert to come in? When you're no longer able to take control. So, you know, we were talking earlier about Australian sleep clinics. Mm-hmm. I would love to see something like that in Dubai. Let's talk about that next. We're just going to go to a short break right now uh, and come back and talk about when do you need a sleep clinic? How do you know that you need a sleep clinic and what does that involve? All of that is still coming up right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Okay, Cecile, so uh, we're going to talk sleep clinics now. What is a sleep clinic, first of all? Is that when somebody comes to your house or is it when you go to a facility? What does that mean exactly? So the first experience I had of sleep clinics was in Australia where people are actually, parents are actually admitted and we stay with you, we help you overnight or during the day, we help you establish routines and we guide you to understanding what you're hearing. And this is something that I'd love to see in Dubai, but it's not available. Mm. We offer in-house, as in in your home, in consults and office. I love the ones in your home because there I can spend some time with you. I can possibly do a sleep cycle with you where we put the child to bed. We go through what you're hearing again and we guide you into understanding that child and then Hopefully they cooperate and wake up and we can repeat it and do that with you again. This is, this is the best way to teach a parent. Unfortunately, a lot of times budgets also come into it. So a workshop works really well, as in someone coming to a group session where we talk all about sleep. But a workshop never gives you personalized solutions. And for success in sleep, in getting things right, you need to be able to have a personalized solution. Mm. Writing a plan. If you don't come and see someone like myself, write your own plan. Sit down and think about how your day should go and stick to it. Decide that you're going to do it. Take, get some advice on online. Get some advice by reading a book. And there's a lot of sleep literature out there. So I will also warn parents that sleep literature 
doesn't know your family dynamics. So whilst it's there to help you, it's there to guide you, it doesn't really give you an absolute. And you've got to think about rather if it's not working once you've tried that, speaking to someone like in what we're terming a sleep clinic. If you don't have somebody um, coming to your house, it can be incredibly difficult and confusing. I remember myself going online and reading through article after article and opinion after opinion. And it's it can get so confusing. And I mean, you don't actually want to reach out to anybody about it as well because you feel like a failure as a parent. Why is my child not sleeping? Why can't I do this? I should be able to do this. This is why people go to the online, you know, Google searches for things and, and a book that a friend recommended. And whilst, like I'm saying, these are really good resources, sometimes that personalized touch yeah. of someone in your home saying, this is how we do it. Yeah. This is your child and this is what I'm hearing from our experience. That also reassures the parent. And the important thing to know is you might have more than one child it's not going to be the same experience no unfortunately with each one <laughs> you think you've done it i've got it covered you know i did it with the first one and then it comes along you've got a, a, a second one who's completely different who sleeps differently who has different cues who you know reacts to things differently it's a whole other experience isn't it and you've got to you've got to take each child as an individual you cannot set them as a stereotype And this is unfortunately, again, what literature does. It uses a stereotype. Whereas your child, your first one, your second one, even your third and fourth, you think by then you've got it nailed. They are there to challenge you. They are different little people. They've got different little personalities. And we have to be able to work within those. We don't ever want a child to become passive and uninteractive and not be a happy, healthy little individual. Mm-mm. So I think as well, a f- maybe a final thing to say is as well, when we come to see you as well, a lot of what we're looking at is the child's health. Is there sometimes an underlying concern? And then if there is, we have enough knowledge and background not to correct that possibly, but to refer on to the correct person mm. to may help you. And we would then work along with those people to make the necessary changes. And I've worked with a lot of children that have got special needs, um, that have got um, other underlying concerns, and yet we've still achieved good sleep because we've had a good background knowledge of that. Whether you've got that going on or, you know, it it can be other small things that you're not aware of that, um, you know, they're developmental milestones as well. So many things can affect a baby's sleep, right? I'm smiling at the moment, actually, because just maybe three days ago, um, I went round to do bedtime with parents and we put the bubs into a bigger cot and she passed out within about 15 minutes. And the parents were standing there going, you're magic. And I was like, no, I don't think I'm magic. I think it was the change in her bed, which sometimes if you're not in their homes, you don't realize the cot is too small. Tiny little thing like a size of a cot can affect how that child sleeps. Putting her into a bigger cot. Now, I haven't checked in this week to see how they're going since I was there. The first day was went really well, but I'm going to check in tomorrow to say how are things going. I haven't heard from them. I'm assuming they're going better. So, and that is always what we live for. I love hearing from parents when they're struggling 
But even more, I love when it suddenly goes quiet because then I hear, I'm, I'm hearing the struggle has got better. So we I'm all hoping. love that. We all so. love that. We're here for you. The struggle is real with kids and sleep. Your final piece of advice for parents. Start Cecilia. early. Don't wait. Start early. Start with good habits. And I know that people will say to you they can't self-soothe at four weeks. I completely agree with that. But if you start with good habits, you're starting to encourage and teach your child to self-soothe. And then you do not have to do the the crying. I love it. What an absolute pleasure, Cecile, as always. You are going to be back on the show. We're going to be talking breastfeeding soon yes. with lots of advice around that. Of course, Sharjah, you know, it is the, the baby-friendly, the child-friendly city here. And we always love having you uh, because this is so important for so many parents mm. out there who I are will really say, struggling. Sharjah is the leader in initiating breastfeeding and supporting breastfeeding in the UAE. And they're doing a tremendous job. It's, it's lovely to watch their, their support and, and their progress. Thank you so much, Cecile. We can't wait to have you back. But coming up in the next hour, meet the brother and sister duo so passionate about building a better world. We're going to be celebrating them on International Humanitarian Day next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.